back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. This week is with director James Burns. Definitely a unique conversation, one that I don't think I can have with many people simply because of the life that James has had. He um, has been in and out of the prison system since he was uh, six years old, and he has spent a fair amount of time in solitary confinement. And that has ended up becoming a lot of what his work is now on as a successful filmmaker. He turned his whole life around and he is and, and, uh, for a while now. And um, now he spends a lot of his time working on projects, both narrative and documentary, that work on the prison system and issues around that, uh, issues with solitary confinement, bail bonds, and, and how that system operates and overall ways to break the cycle of people coming in and out of jail um, and kind of never having an opportunity to really have a foundation to really move on. Uh, interestingly, you know, much connected to uh, the type of cycle conversation we were having the week prior with uh, Ricky Staub. And so, man, just such an interesting guy, such a nice guy. Um, you know, I mean, he's been through a lot, obviously, and it leaves him with a lot to say and to express and to feel. And I think that that's very apparent in really um, great ways and inspiring ways. Um, interestingly, this all started once he got out and he goes, he tells the whole story, but just so you know, um, there was a Hollywood movie starring, uh, James Woods, Ving Rhames, Mary Louis Parker, um, some others, uh, called Jamesy Boy, which was about his life and the, the in and out of jail that he went through. Um, and so that's kind of how his world, his, his understanding of the world of filmmaking started, which is unique and incredible and, and has its own challenges in terms of making a career out of that, which we discuss. But now, you know, he had a short film that was actually produced by another guest on the podcast, Todd Wiseman Jr., called We Live This. And you should check that out. It's a 15-minute film. It's online now. And it's, it's beautiful. I, I, I really like it. And um, that won a special mention at Tribeca. And uh, this year, in only two weeks, uh, actually April 23rd, 4 p.m. screening, he has a world premiere of Revolving Doors at Tribeca. And, um, you know, so now he's a filmmaker. And he, he's been working at Vice for over a year doing stuff with them. Um, a lot of stuff that is also based around the prison system and things like that. And, you know, we go into all of this in the conversation. It's it's just amazing. It's a lot of heavy, important topics. And he is extremely well-suited to discuss them, to emote on them. You know, the guy has a certain credibility when trying to talk to subjects or find them or, you know, build trust because he's totally been there. And, you know, this is his task now, as he puts it, to um, try and help these problems, help people that are in them by seeing the stories that he makes. And it's really just a remarkable turn. And it was really cool to be able to sit down and talk with him about it. I've known of him for, for a while now. And it's, you know, when you hear those stories, you, you never know what they're going to be like in, in real life. And he's a thoughtful, gentle dude, man. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Just great. Um, just some housekeeping. If you can like and comment on iTunes, that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further. We're on all social media channels at AVC Pod. That's our handle. And for any inquiries, questions, or uh, guest ideas, you can email uh, this show's producer, Courtney Ryan, at Courtney at AVCPod.com. So this week, it is James Burns, director writer and all-around good guy as always thanks for being here i got a series i'm working on called rite of passage and it's all about 
the event or ritual in which an individual transcends from oneself to a higher self or from individual to a group, adolescence to adulthood, etc. And the reason why I was really pumped about this idea was because it I felt like it was a magical thread that kind of weaved us all together as human beings. Yeah. And I think that at the end of the day that's where my work or how it's kind of driven is is through the human condition. Yeah, I mean knowing your your work in general that seems like I'm not surprised that you'd be taking on something like that. How long have you been working on this? Uh What part of this process is it at? Sure. So, I'm in the second episode right now. Just shot the first one 2 weeks ago which was How long are they? They're like 15 minutes. So, okay. they're short. Yeah. But uh First episode is is all about gang initiation, and I connected with the G-Stone Crips here in Brooklyn, and they were uh, open to having me be there and film an actual initiation process. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was interesting getting a look at why young people join a gang and you know what it's all about and the historical context behind it. So what kind yeah. of things, I mean, maybe you don't like, if you don't want to talk about it, cause it's going to be an sure. episode, but what kind of things are happening in the initiation? I'm just curious from like a technical standpoint, were you just like trying to keep it low profile, like a DSLR kind of thing and just trying to, was it you that's filming just cause you have the connection and like, you don't want to be too overbearing with like a film crew and stuff. That seems like a very particular setting to, um, try and yeah. document in a way that, you know, you're happy with versus whatever you can get type situation. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to approach it in a very respectful and yeah. cautious way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Shocking. Don't want to piss those guys off. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we filmed on, so it was two two cameras, myself and the DP. I usually run B-cam on most of my shoots. Gotcha. Uh, we shot on C300, used the uh, Zeiss Primes. And we kept the crew pretty minimal. There were three of us. So yeah. it was myself, the DP, and, uh, you know, associate producer who was not able to lock down any guest performance releases for this. Get out of here. <laughs> no, people wouldn't want to yeah. sign releases. Not on this one. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was interesting because we had an interview the night before with one of the OGs. Uh, which stands for Original Gangster, and he's one of the leaders of the gang. And he's like, yeah, tomorrow, um, you know, this is what's going to happen. He lays it all out for us. And he calls the next day and says that he's actually not going to come, but uh, to just hang tight and his his boys will show up and things are going to just happen. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, you know, about 20 guys show up. Um, oh, wow. And the initiation process ensues, which entails the individual who's about to join being beaten by a group of them and they call it being squared in so like beaten to the point of going to the hospital or yeah i mean it was brutal they split this guy's eyes open i mean his eye was bulging out of his head jesus they kicked him in the face like yeah they, i mean they busted him up really bad That's... they could have killed him honestly it was intense that brings up some interesting like journalistic ethical questions about filming it and not like do you do you when you see someone being almost beaten to death like the thought of calling for help like where where 
that must have been an interesting internal question as it's unfolding, yeah? There's so many questions that are racing through your mind when you're filming something Did you like know that that, that was going to be the extent to what happened? I knew that there was going to be a group of guys who are going to jump him in. I didn't know it was going to be as vicious as it was. Yeah. You know, where it was like, wow, this guy could have probably been killed. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, a lot of the questions cross your mind. You know, are we safe? Is this guy going to be safe? Should I intervene? Should I not? Um, you know, this is something that was going to happen regardless whether we were there or whether we weren't. Um, it it stopped once it got, once, you know, there was too much blood involved. And uh, it was over, I'd say, in like 20 seconds. Wow. It was that fast. That's interesting, too. So, I mean, it, it wasn't really, there wasn't enough time to even really process having some sort of reaction about trying to stop it. Right. I mean, well, obviously when, as a, as a human being, yeah, you know, when you see someone hurting, yeah, uh, whether it's being being hurt by physically by someone else or themselves or whatever the case is your first instinct is to is to stop the the situation from actually happening yeah no of course um it's a little different like i, I don't know if like if i saw someone who was about to hurt themselves or something you know i'd, I'd probably yeah. i don't know if i can stand there and watch someone do that well so it's fa- yeah it's fascinating because yeah. i mean working in you work in that in this field a lot these stories of gangs and prison culture and you know we'll get into all of it but i got to uh, i'm realizing now that that probably means that uh, more often than not you're filming a lot of things that you know if you if the camera wasn't in your hand and if this wasn't the job at, during the, for, for that day in that moment there would be a lot of stopping something from happening or trying like as a natural reaction and it's just that's not any different than i guess any real like journalist in a field kind of situation it's just an interesting thing to be putting yourself through in terms of that question Sure. Or exposing other people to, you know. Like um, like your crew? Yeah. Well, the crew and, and the audience, you know, to, to expose them to that level of, of violence. and. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's kind of, it's obvious that, that's, that the goal is to expose that to the audience. But it's interesting, like, you know, on the day that the other people on your crew, you know, sometimes you don't realize what you signed up for to a degree. Yeah. Um, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't put him out there, but like our DP got kind of sick afterwards. You know, he was from the experience, from the experience. Everybody was shaken up. Yeah. The cops came afterwards and it was, it was intense. I mean, but that's the raw nature of what's happening. The most stark contrast of it all was coming back to Williamsburg, which is like, yeah, in the same borough, most of Brooklyn at that, you know, it's, it's, it's just like this bubble that people are living in and um yeah same night you know walking back into williamsburg putting our equipment away and listening to all these other conversations that are happening on the street that seem very irrelevant and kind of silly (laughs) well that that must i mean i feel like that's also that's a great analogy for what at least from on paper of your life i mean because i'd like to go back you know from the beginning with childhood um pretty well documented just a, a simple google of your name and all these stories pop up about what happened to you starting from a very young age at age six being put in solitary confinement and then being in the prison system um you know i feel like there's a million ways that the conversation can go and i think to keep it in the realm of what this podcast is generally about is i'm curious in going through that at what point do you feel like you had an understanding of your own creativity of your own 
desire to express because I would imagine that a lot of it, even if it was there, had to be bottled up because that's the version of being soft, so to speak. And like, I'm just curious, what was that process of coming to understand that aspect of yourself dealing with going in and out of the prison system as a child? Wow, that's a that's actually a really great question and one that I don't think I've been asked ever, or if, you know, not in a while at least. Um, it's interesting when you walk into these prisons, you see a wealth of talent. People whose minds work a little bit differently, but very talented and artistic types in there, because you have to find a way to channel all of that negative energy that's being harbored in there. So growing up in the system was very difficult because you have all these like repressed feelings, you know, there's a lot of anger and, and, and confusion and things just like kind of boiling inside of you. And oftentimes these emotions consume the vessel that contains it. So you need to find an outlet. You need to find a way out. And for me, that was through writing. I found poetry as a means to express myself and also be able to kind of understand my surroundings and, and, and be able to almost have a conversation with myself. At what age did that start? I think that was probably around, to be honest, like 15. I mean, earlier on, I, I was drawn towards music a lot and I was loved music. Um, and I grew up on hip hop, but... Um, Cause that's a lot of years being, of going, if it started at six... You know, nine years until you, till like writing found you. Obviously, also just out of pure being a, a real child, um, not getting. You needed to get to an age where that type of expression happens naturally for anyone. Do you remember when, when like you first realized that this was how to get it out and what that was like? Yeah. So when I was in solitary confinement, I was in a cell next to a guy who was serving a double life sentence and who had spent multiple years in solitary confinement. And he, interestingly enough, was the closest thing to a voice of reason that I had in that place. And he was always very kind of positive and uplifting, but raw at the same time. I'm sorry, just enlighten me. You can have a relationship with the person next in like the cell next to you. So I would I would stand on my. So the reason the, the way we would communicate was through the ventilation system. Really? So, you know, if I think back now, I can barely remember what his face looked like because it was more of a silhouette through the ventilation system. Wow. Um, But I can hear his voice very clearly. And, you know, he's the one that kind of encouraged me to start reading more and maybe write out my thoughts. And this was when you were like 14-ish? Yeah, this is when I was 15 years old. Yeah. And um, that was a game changer for me. We weren't allowed to have stationary items in solitary confinement, but he snuck some, like a small pen and, um, you know, a little bit of paper over there and I would write or I would slide underneath my bunk bed and I would write in tiny letters. It's amazing that like a pen and paper is contraband. Yeah. You know, it's It's terrifying. Totally. I mean, these are, these are basic, these are essential, you know, you would think they were rights. Yeah. Um, but when I was reading the words back to myself, something was happening. I, f- I felt like I was understanding and finding my voice as a poet, but more actually more so as a person. I was really understanding what I was going through, what my surroundings were. Um, what were you writing about in the in, in the beginning? What I saw, yeah, every day, and Figured. how and how I felt. Yeah, you know, it, it was a cathartic process, and therefore so is filmmaking. So 
I'm always trying to channel that same voice that I found in the darkest place in my life and channel that into something real. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing through my films, I feel like, or at least that's what I hope to do every time I... Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that that's universal where people that don't have that heavy of a story, I think, can relate in their own way. Like, that's, that's something I know I'm trying to do, and I certainly... Um, my story's different. Sure. Um, how, does it, how does someone go from... Because I was trying to find it on, online just for my own research, and I couldn't really find... How, do you, how does someone go from being that guy who... Or teenage boy who's like found, figured out he could write and that he wanted to and enjoyed it in solitary confinement at 15 to, I guess the first big thing would be Jamesy boy, right? Yeah, correct. Like how, how do you get from there to there? <laughs> that's a, that's a long story, but I I'm can sure. give you the reader's Cliff digest notes, version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically there's a, a woman named Patty White, but this is where it all started before I was even born. Um, she's like my second mother. She worked for 60 Minutes and did a documentary special on my mother back in 1979. My mother was also, you know, uh, in and out of juvenile delinquent facilities. And uh, my grandfather was involved with organized crime. And, you know, these issues go back generations for my family. So Patty White found my mother and found a story in her, did this piece for 60 Minutes and became friends with my mom. And continue that relationship, you know, throughout the years. Uh, fast forward to 1999, 2000. Patty comes back into the picture and sees that I'm kind of going down the same path as my mother. And she decided to do another story. It was a documentary, which kind of focused on our family struggling to break the cycle. Fast forward a few more years, you know, to uh, 2002 when I caught my case and went to prison. Patty had always kind of just like stayed there with me and believed in me, even when I didn't believe in myself and uh, stayed in contact and was just always this, this like, like she touched me in a deep way, helped me believe in myself. Like, gotta believe that that's few and far between. Totally. And she had no reason to help some punk kid like me. Yeah. You know, and uh, when I got out, which was December 23rd, 2005. How old were you? So I was 19. How long had you been in? Four years. And her son was just graduating Cornell University. His name's Trevor White, who is also my mentor now. But uh, him and his brother, Tim White, started a film production company in Los Angeles called Star Thrower. And uh, I was having a hard time finding my feet in the world again. And Patty reached out and said, you know what? You should connect with Trevor. And I did. And we... Did you have a desire to do anything in film? Was your mind anywhere even in this ballpark thinking about stuff? I mean, I'd always kind of been exposed to it through Patty because of, you know, the documentary she did on me when I was a kid and the the film that my mother... you know, I was always in love with film and I love to watch television, but I thought I was, my path was going to be in music, to be honest with you. Like I loved poetry and writing lyrics. Definitely thinking creatively when you got out. Oh yeah. I mean, thinking creatively ever since I was a kid. But like in terms of trying to make that be whatever it was your career or whatever it was you were going to do, your mindset was in, the, was in that space? Yeah. I thought that maybe I can go to school and become an engineer first. An and audio work engineer. On, yeah. And yeah. work on my music on the side. Um, but then I realized that was kind of a trap, you know, like pay all this money to go to school. You know, most of the engineers I talked to were like, don't do that. 
Um, hmm. It's a waste of time. You know, do it yourself. Like, just just get into it. Figure out a way to get in and, and do it. Uh, so, anyways, uh, Trevor and I bonded in L.A. and uh, two different worlds completely. Well, yeah. yeah. Cornell grad. And- <laughs> Cornell grad and me just fresh out of prison. Yeah. Um, and very closed off. I was very closed off. Um, I could understand why. But, you know, going back to that, that time in solitary, I learned something about the human condition. And Trevor furthered that feeling of, like, being able to connect on a basic human level. He treated me like a brother. He treated me like a friend. And he wasn't judging me, which is what I was worried about. I would imagine that was happening a lot, being judged. Yeah, it does. It was, it was, I was terrified of being judged. Yeah. I was scared, shitless, that of getting out of prison, honestly, and being accepted by society or people. You know, I always thought so that was... So that was a mixed bag of emotions, thinking about getting released? Oh, yeah. I mean... It wasn't all like, oh, I can't wait to get out? It wasn't that pure of a, of a thought? By the time I was getting out in 2005, I'd spent more than half of my life in institutions. Yeah. You know, since I was a child. It was very nerve-wracking for me. Very painful experience that still haunts me to this day in some ways. But again, Trevor treated me like a brother, and I trusted him. So when he asked me about all these stories that he had already heard through his mother, Patty White, I eventually started to open up to him. And you know, we, we bonded in a real way. And next thing you know, six months later, he calls me, and he says, what do you think about writing a script about your life story? And I said, no, <laughs> no way, man. Uh, your mom already did a documentary and I'm just not comfortable with putting my story out there. No, thanks. And then, of course, Patty White gives me a call and whatever she says goes. <laughs> <laughs> she had convinced me to do it, basically. Do you remember what she said that convinced you? Besides the fact that she was the one yeah. saying it? Same thing that she said to me when I was 11 years old to convince me to participate in her documentary. You know, we were sitting on a stoop and she said, you know, if you had an opportunity to connect with someone who's in the same position as you or maybe help someone else understand what you're going through would you do it i said yeah she said if you can help somebody not go through what you went through would you do it i said of course and she said well you can do that by sharing your story by being open and honest and real i know it's terrifying and embarrassing but you can make a difference she said this is your opportunity here to make a difference do you want to do that? You can choose to do that. You can choose not to and just keep going throughout your life. You know, that's okay. But you have an opportunity here to maybe reach someone else. Hmm. Will you do it? Seems like knowing the work that you've done even, you know, since, that's kind of been a fire as a reason that hasn't um, burned out. No, it's, it's actually the fire that wakes me up in the morning and the same fire that's burning before I go to sleep at night. You know, it's something that's always going to live inside of you. And, um... You know, our work, you know, as filmmakers, I'm sure you can understand this. This is something that it's it's a driving force in our lives to try to connect, you know, not only with other people, but within ourselves. It's a very personal, cathartic journey that we're on. So, yeah, man. And then things with that project just start. They must have been from your perspective, just insanely, you know, blowing up is the best way I could describe it in terms of the eventual cast that you get and it's a Hollywood level A cast that must have been such a good thing to go through but I can't also imagine the challenge and like the the mental struggle of dealing with um well just tell me I mean like as it as it started to come together and you're realizing it's going to be a big thing with big Hollywood names what was that challenge wow lots of challenges there <laughs> uh, lot, lots of challenges in making that film 
because, you know, I was very close to it, but also had to be removed at the same time because we're dealing with another director who has a vision for it. We're dealing with producers from Hollywood uh, and a cast, essentially. And they, we got to make a film here. And it was James Woods, James Ray Parker, Bing Rames. Yeah. I mean, Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas who, who shaved his head to play the role. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, you know, it was painful a lot of the time. I'm sure. Because it's also people interpreting your life. And if it's not being interpreted the way that you feel, there must have been like, but it's my life. Like, I get to say how things are. And then they're like, no, that's not the case. It's just, I'm, I'm just assuming because this is how things always go. I'd been developing this story for five years with Trevor. And I'll never forget the day I showed up to the pre-pro office. And it was the most bizarre thing, surreal experience I think I've still ever had. Yeah. We pull up. And, we, you know, we got the Teamster trucks that say Jamesy Boy LLC on the truck. That's bizarre. First, right? Walking into the office, Trevor is introducing me to a hundred people. It's like an ant farm in there. Everyone's running around trying to get stuff together. You know, oh, here's our line producer. You know, uh, line producer shakes my hand, has no idea. And he's like, oh, this is the real James Burns. He's like, oh, great to meet you. By the way, Trevor, I need you to sign this paper. You know, it's it's very much down to business. And then I remember walking into the props department and it was like sort of a warehouse and it was kind of dark and there was a little bit uh, of light coming through the windows. And I saw all this furniture, all these furnishings and, and, and stuff that they were making to build the story of, of my life. Yeah. And I was just kind of walking through. By, it's got to be so surreal. It was so surreal. Um, I had to check myself many times you know when i was when i was feeling emotional about it i'm sure and say okay this might not be your life or the way that things played out exactly or maybe you feel something some way about it but the director doesn't okay let's take a step back and look at it from all angles is the integrity of the story still there and that's what i have to ask myself at the end of the day and that helped me get through it yeah plus i gotta believe you probably had um you know patty's words constantly like that's that's the thing right At the end of the day even if there's a disagreement if it helps people in solitary or the discussion about solitary then it's worth the things being different or the small things that might be rubbing you the wrong way seems like that's that has to in a way i guess become your golden rule which is why i you know i'll circle back and say the probably the reason why i was like is the integrity still here yeah yeah because if the integrity is still there then it can reach people yeah. And I, I, I have this question in my mind and I don't know where the right place in the chronology is to ask it, but you know, because it is a cycle, right? And it's like, when did you feel that that cycle was broken? Because are you still, are you on this set talking about, in a sense, how you got out? And is there like a concern, like, what if I'm still in this cycle? Like, there's no guarantee maybe that I've totally changed? Or did you have some sort of cathartic and spiritual experience where you're like, you were able to really feel that person not there anymore i feel like a completely different person today than i was even five years ago um i'm so far removed from who i was then but there will always be a piece of me that's still there always there'll always be that young man who went through that you know the, these scars are are deep but that doesn't mean that i can't manage them hence the filmmaking you know it's a way for me to channel um it's a very personal thing and we all have our things, you know, every single person. My life may be 
different from someone who had a, a very great upbringing and that's okay we can all connect and understand these basic things that we have inside of us that could be holding us back or whatever the case is but you learn how to manage it you know how to get over it and and move forward yeah. it's finding a way, finding your outlet finding the way finding your voice yeah yeah well when you were going through um the process of making it of being a part of them making jamesy boy when did it really click that you're like i i i like this art form and i want to do this art form when did that happen because it's been making films seemingly ever since but it seems like there was a transition into that did it happen while on set it actually happened early on in the process when we were writing the script um because i was in love with the with the writing and and then beginning to visualize through the writing and listening to music while we write and that was very exciting to me and that's when i knew that i wanted to start making film yeah it's during the writing stages of it and i still love that part the con conceptualizing and um you know I, I think i knew then and production was just you know <laughs> just wide-eyed the whole time just like sure yeah it was a big set you know it was that was my film school, basically. Yeah. You know? But I knew early on that I want to make films, and I knew after that I had to hit the ground running. To ride the wave. To ride the wave, um, but How'd also establish myself as, you know, as a director because I can produce, and I knew I had all these great ideas, and I knew I, what I wanted to say, but I hadn't shown anything, truly. I mean... Well, yeah, because it's, it's an interesting conundrum because it's like you did write it, and that is... An excellent credit to get there. Actually, so uh, Lane Shadgit and Trevor White wrote the, the script, but I was a part of the writing. Gotcha. I, I wrote gotcha. like My some mistake. of the first draft. No, it's all good. Um, but heavily involved in the writing process yeah. and, and like throughout the whole production. Right, right. But even like even further to the point that um, it is a big movie about you, but it, that doesn't necessarily translate to you having a film career after. It doesn't at all. You know, there's movies about real people, all you know, a lot, and it doesn't mean that they're going to have a career after. How are you um, assessing that problem, and how are you trying to go about doing something about it and, and, and giving yourself the best chance? Actually, I, I knew it was going to be a problem trying to become a filmmaker after there was a movie being made about my life. Uh, because they're like, of course he wants to be a filmmaker now. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. In, in, in a weird way, it almost hurts your chances. It does. They're like, keep dreaming, kid. Yeah. And that's why I said I knew I had to hit the ground running after the film was over. And that's exactly what I did. So I tried to distance myself from, from Jamesy Boy. You know, for me, that, that, was, that was a great learning experience. I bonded with people. I got a great network through it. But I never wanted to use that as as a way to establish myself as a filmmaker I try to steer away from that i embrace it a little bit more now you know it's, it's just part of my story if people are interested you know like i'll put it in my bio or whatever the case is well you've made it to a certain point that you feel comfortable where well, i feel comfortable with yeah. it because i feel like i've established my voice and other people are you know and, and i'm still crafting that and honing that it's defining your career less and less yes and uh, so, yeah, it was definitely a lot of hurdles to get over <laughs> with that because of that movie. Well, what, how, what was the first thing that you really, that you felt like um, you're starting to get vindication as a filmmaker in your own right? And how'd you, how'd you do that? What'd that feel like? Uh, again, it was, it was like it, as soon as James E. Boy was done, I started writing another script. And I was 
determined to get that done. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really consider myself even after Jamesy boy, like a full fledged filmmaker. Right. Well, you weren't, you know, right. I, yeah. I still, I needed to, to prove it. I needed to make my own projects. And after my first project, I still wasn't convinced that I was a filmmaker because it was a terrible movie. Well, <laughs> as is everybody's, you know, yeah. no one wants to show you their first project. Um, so was it a feature? What no, was no, it? no. It was a short film. It was a short film. Okay. I, did, I did a couple shorts. Narrative and stuff? Yeah, they're narratives. Nice. nice. Um, you know. That's good. Yeah. That's what you needed to do. There was <laughs> no getting sure. around it. Right. I mean, it, and it was it was definitely, I will never take it back. I would make a bad film, you know, if I had to go back and make another bad film, for sure. Like, because it was a learning process that was, you know, invaluable. What do you think some of the, if you can recall, what do you think were the things that you learned specifically that you then took into more successful things? To actually take your time and know what you're going to say before you start putting things in motion. There are going to be a lot of other voices and opinions and, you know, people that you're collaborating with kind of coming together and having different ideas. But you have to know at the end of the day what it is that you're trying to achieve, because you may say something and everybody else thinks that you're crazy. But, uh, you know, until you do it and show people what you mean, they're not going to understand. So that's where communication and stuff comes in. It's like, just work with me. Just trust me here. I think this is going to work. And you know what? With my first one, I think that was there was a lot of struggle there with communication. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always the biggest thing. I think one of the most humbling things about collaborative projects is coming to terms with how not clear we all are in terms of describing what's in our mind's eye. And like in the beginning, it's like, how are you not understanding? It's like, well, listen, man, they're not understanding. <laughs> so, you, so you need to like accept that and like figure out a better way to deal with this because, you know, you can bitch about it all you want, but right. if they're not understanding, they're it's not. It's just not there. Yeah, it's just not there. Um, when, what was the first project where you were like, you actually felt a certain level of success with it and how are you measuring that success? I think Epitaph was one of the first ones I, you know, I went to a film festival and, you know, I had a full crew on that and I still don't think it's a great movie, but you know, it went places. I started from beginning to end, put it together and I felt, I felt successful after that because I had made something and it was unique in a way. It wasn't perfect, but I felt like I, I can hear hints of my own voice in there. And I was seeing things that I was trying out that were new, that were kind of working. And I was like, okay, I know what to do on the next one. Uh, so I think it was on Epitaph when I started to feel some some success. What was that voice? You know, I'm still trying to figure out how to describe that voice, but I know it's inside me. And I know when I'm writing a scene or when I'm on set and I'm describing a moment, what that voice is. Yeah. It's interesting because I was going to say, you've been talking about your voice for since in terms of this story from a young age. And I don't think... I think this is a universal thing that it's not necessarily that it's finding your voice, but it's that trying to get it to a place where what's in your mind translated to what ends up getting made, the discrepancy gets less and less and less, Yeah, you know, and that's the hard thing. Definitely. I think that, and that comes through experience as well. Trial and error, you know, understand, again, your communication getting better, building rapport with people that you work with, and you kind of have an idea of the the puzzle pieces that you're putting together how it's going to work or how it's going to sound and that's like the producer side of your mind working right like who are the people that are going to bring this vision together that i have in my head i'm constantly inspired by other people's work you know i might watch something and i see a hint of of something there maybe it's like a sound or something that is in there and 
you know, uh, and I start going through my mind's Rolodex, figuring out like, who does that really well? Putting all these pieces together is, um, that's directing. Yeah. And, and trusting like, and trusting that, you know, where the core of what they're doing is, you know, well, it's funny. I, I, when I talk to people and like, they're getting to a point in terms of experience, it sounds like often the thing that they end up talking about is that they're just, they're getting better at steering the ship, but they're not trying to be every part of the ship. And it's like in terms of selecting the right people and then giving good guidance, but letting them do it, you know, the direction, I, I think uh, a more amateur view is that the, that direction is strictly what we're talking, what you were saying to the actors, but like, you know, how are you directing production design three weeks out? You know, it's like, it comes down to that stuff way more. And it's something that um, I think in the beginning of people's careers is really overlooked. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always going to be you're putting a part of yourself in everything, but you have to trust your team and your collaborators more than anything, you know, and, and they have to, you all have to be simpatico and succinct. And that's when you see a, a film that's really well done. I think all the little nuances from every department are there. And I think a big part of that is yeah, through your direction, but also like not getting in the way of letting someone do what they do. Well, one might argue that's good direction. <laughs> You know, like just knowing knowing how to press people's buttons in the right way. And sometimes the best way is to not press a button and like understanding people like that. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, the beauty of, of this is uh, is collaboration. I'm constantly inspired and blown away by my peers. And, um, I, you know, this is a privilege and a dream to continue to do this. Yeah. Um, when you were going, I guess Epitaph took you to a film festival or two. And how'd you approach those in the beginning, were you trying to like get something out of that experience in particular into the next things that you were making or was it, were you not thinking about it too heavily? It was more so just, just doing it, you know, getting that positive affirmation that, Hey, you know, I can like, I'm going to do this. Also, you know, it's uh, testing yourself is super important Mm. and, and pushing your own boundaries is important. You know, sometimes I've, I've had to learn to be uncomfortable because uncomfortable creates change. And when you're starting a new project or you're wandering too far into the woods, you know, yeah. you're a little uncomfortable. But uh, what you find is so valuable. Yeah. Um, so I think it was more of a learning process in the beginning for me. Um, and then it was like, OK, I think I have enough here to make something powerful. Maybe um, at least if I feel like if I can give myself the, the goosebumps, then maybe someone else might feel it, too. Yeah, yeah. And then, I don't know how far along, but then um, the project We Live This was great, and it's online now. Um, really suggest watching it. In fact, I think I suggested watching it when I sat down with Todd Weisman Jr., who ended up being, um, well, Hayden Five was, I don't know what the technical, what was their actual credit? Yeah, so Hayden Five came on, there were producers on it. Producers. And uh, I, you know, I'm a big fan of those guys. Yeah. Todd Wiseman's like one of my best homies. Um, but I had already shot a good portion of it and showed some of it to, or a mutual friend had introduced us actually and gave me Todd's email. I shot him an email with the stuff that I already had and he responded you know, maybe, you know, immediately. And it was like, hey, why don't you come in tomorrow and let's talk about your project? <laughs> it sounds like Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, so that people know it's a, it's a story about, you know, kids who dance on the subways for money. And um, it's just very touching. It's like 15 minutes. Yeah, it, I mean... It's a beautiful little short. Yeah, and I, I feel like 
again with with we live this it kind of just came to me honestly you know i've seen plenty of these showtime performances that we see on the subway but i never it never struck me to do a film about it i know it's very visual but i saw well, there's this a way that that stuff is, can be cliche like doing something on panhandlers like it's like a very if you don't do it in the right tone it's very much feels like a student film it's a student film topic unless you take a higher level to it which is what it does which is why i think i know that's why i liked it as much as i did definitely i mean and that's the thing is when i saw that specific group we live this uh, which is the name of the crew i knew that there was something very special and i was on my way to work when i had seen them performing and uh, i was so compelled that i got off on their stop and followed them uh and Did miss, they know? Yeah, and missed my stops to work. <laughs> and yeah, no, and I, I approached them and I introduced myself and they were kind of wary, like, who's this guy? But there were a few of them who were like, oh yeah, like director, camera guide, you shoot music videos, like I do music. They were, they were very excited, some of them, but they had no idea the the level of, of depth that I wanted to, to get because I saw so much more in that short amount of time. You know, that's the thing is sometimes you see people and you know there's so much more there mm-hmm. from the moment that you meet them. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's, they gave me that feeling immediately. Cool. So that's what drew me towards them. Cool. Yeah. And then, I mean, it goes on to be, what was, what was, what, was, what did it get at Tribeca? Oh yeah. So we, we won the special jury mention at Tribeca. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, in, that's. You know, I I know with Epitaph, you know, you got probably gone into some mid-level festivals, which was some nice affirmation at the time. But now it feels like, you know, that must have been a coming full circle type of thing in terms of wanting to be a filmmaker and knowing in, to a degree what you're up against having this thing, having Jamesy Boy be made about you and having that chip on your shoulder as if you didn't have <laughs> enough chips on your shoulder. <laughs> what was that? What was that experience? Oh, I mean, to be honest with you, when I, when I got into Tribeca, uh, God, it, it was like, it's hard for me to describe still to this day. Like I almost cried basically. Yeah. You know, I was so emotional because I didn't even know if I thought We Lived This was a good film when I had finished with it. Isn't it crazy how that can happen? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, is like, this even good? I don't know anymore, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and when I got the call from the programmers there, yeah, it just, I was blown away. And um, what was running through your mind? Oh, I gotta share this with the rest of the team. <laughs> you know, I was just so happy to share it mm. with with other people and celebrate with my team. You know, I was very thankful with everyone that I worked in. I'm still so thankful for all those people that we started because I still work with the same people. Yeah, we found uh, you know a synergy together, and that was the most exciting part. Mm. And that's still the most exciting part about film to me is being able to share. Yeah, super. It can only it only works when it's collaborative which yeah. I think is its strength and also what makes it so fucking difficult. Yeah. For um, sure. yeah. So then um, things develop with Vice, which I think is a perfect fit for, you know, the hard, edgy content topics that you cover. How did that come about? Yeah, so I, um, I actually knew one of the producers over at HBO through a mutual friend. And, you know, we became friends over the years and constantly talking about ideas and projects that we wanted to do and um i was telling him about a story i knew in baltimore and he's like wow he's like what do you think about doing something with vice and uh i said yeah i'd love to and you know we kind of pitched it to vice and you know 
Vice didn't really get it at the time, I think. Really? They didn't really, yeah, they really know who I was. So I, you know, we went out and shot some of it, uh, you know, some proof of concept. And that, what was that about? Uh, and the topic was on the money bail system. And we focused on East Coast bail bonds, a guy named Vinny Magliano in Baltimore. And once we brought the proof of concept back, they were like, holy shit, yeah, let's do it. So it looks awesome. <laughs> it's amazing how that works yeah. sometimes. And so, uh, you know, they haven't let me go since. So, yeah. I, I mean, and it's, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to talk about this. We have a little bit, but just that a lot of your work being around the prison system and, and the tangents that you can go off of that, like this bail bondsman. I mean, I guess now you can make a, direct line all the way back to what Patty was saying. But where does the drive come? Like, do you put a certain amount of responsibility on your shoulders in terms of trying to get these things fixed? And is that at times hard to deal with? Um, Yeah, I'm very, very passionate about the criminal justice system and just the current state of affairs that we're in here today, here in America, you know, as Americans. I mean... Again, most of my work is geared towards trying to get to the core of the human condition. Um, but I'm passionate about the criminal justice system just because I know how, how, yeah, I'll just go ahead and say it, how fucking broken it is and how fucked up it really is. I mean, it's a mess. And I feel like if we can get young people engaged and understand some of these laws and what's actually happening, if we can tap into breaking people's comfort zones and, and understanding what's, what's really going on. And, you know, I, I think that people will start to take action eventually. You know, that's the powerful thing about the internet is being able to put something out there that will get people at least thinking about it. You're planting seeds. So naturally, and I think that these episodes are perfect for vice, you know, focusing on criminal justice topics that are both informative and kind of shocking at the same time yeah definitely i i guess i it can just be so disheartening feeling like you're th- just n- nothing is getting done and that the, like that you don't feel any traction with the work that you're doing it must be just like it's disheartening yeah it's it's disheartening and you know i'm, I'm very passionate about it i don't think i'll ever stop beating that drum you know it doesn't some, it, you, you never feel like making something about I don't know anything but this like because I, I I no look I you know cheers to you man for going up against it every project it's got to be so tiring it, it honestly it mentally is. yeah it, it it is and I am I am branching out and doing other stuff um, and it actually feels good because yeah. I, 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 I bet it makes the stuff about the prison system better for giving yourself that break and balance Totally. I mean, absolutely. And I'm at the end of the day, you know, I, I like doing stuff that's a little more, you know, like I'm there, there are plenty of stories and ideas that I want to do that are a little more geared towards being artistic and surrealist and, you know, but also keeping realness in there. I, you know, I don't want to be known as the criminal justice guy. Um, you know, it's something that I'm passionate about for sure, but it is good to take a break. And honestly, like, and I'm okay to be open about this, but like, you know, like therapy is, is something that I've, I've been looking into, you know, doing a lot of these projects. It's how do you, I mean, for well, yourself, you mean. yeah, for yeah. myself, yeah. like, Oh, I'm a huge advocate of that. <laughs> Everybody would benefit even if things in your life seem totally fine. I mean, the brain is a very complicated, the relationship you have with yourself is unbelievably complicated. I mean, the last three projects, I, I when I look at the timeline, I did one about hepatitis C and heroin 
uh, epidemic in West Virginia, moving into spending a month of, you know, in solitary confinement, coming out and then filming a, uh, a, a gang initiation, you know? So it's just like, I mean, that was just the last three. It's just super heavy, man. Like <laughs> yeah. they're all so important. And, and I, and I feel like, you know, they're all so important. It's super heavy when you're dealing with it on the ground. And then also, hoping that things change from the work that you're doing. And then obviously either it's not, or it's very slow. It's just a lot. I, I'm, I can imagine it being a lot. Yeah, no, it certainly is. But you know, to be honest, I, I've got really good the support system and you know, like my girlfriend is very supportive. My mother, I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've got great people around me. And I'm so fortunate, so blessed for that. Friends, family, like I feel fortunate meeting you. I, you know, I have a feeling that we'll continue the conversation. Right on. You know, meeting like-minded people and being, this is almost like therapy. Being able to sit here and talk about it, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's good. So I'm, I'm fortunate in that way and I'm going to continue to take care. And yes, I'm, I'm definitely going to take a break from the, the, the criminal justice stuff and, and push my boundaries. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because I'm I'm a, I I'm asking from my own point of you know that I've done a lot of st- it's a totally different totally different topics, but I've done things in areas where it's like it's hard, and you come back from that, and you're just you you notice that you need to take time, and it actually makes you better when you go back out into another hard topic because you are mentally somewhat fresh, mm. that kind of thing. So I, I I always find it fascinating talking to people that operate in in hard to hard to document worlds just because of asking how how are you uh you know that question about how you maintain Mm. um do you have any goals in the foreseeable future about like a big project or something that you're that you're trying to tackle that you're excited about like looking looking forward yeah uh, i'm hoping to do my first feature in the next couple years cool uh, that's what everyone says. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but it's, they, they all say, I'm looking to my next feature, like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm very serious about it. And, you know, we've already started writing. And, um, cool. you know, I'm, uh, you know, I got a lot of ideas for stuff that I want to do here in the future. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited to share it with everyone. Yeah. Is it, I'm assuming, is it in this realm of, of topic? Some of it is is in the realm of... That's good. I mean, it's also going with yeah. what you know, man. It has to come straight from the heart. Right. You know, there, there's one that I'm doing about solitary confinement. Uh, it's a narrative piece. But uh, yeah, no, and there, there are some other ones that are heavier topics, but uh, steering away from prison and street gang and stuff like that, uh, or the streets in general, and more has to do with like the existential. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, because you could still deal with the ramifications of those things without it being so direct. Exactly. And that's, that's what I mean by like branching away from some of my traditional work with criminal justice. We live. This as a good example. Yeah. Of it is. me, heavy topic for sure. But like, you know, still gets to the, like, it's, it's about the human condition. It's about these characters. It's, you know, it's, I mean, so stories like that or, you know, yeah, I got a couple ideas. No, no, that, that, that describes that, that, it really um, well. Yeah. I think. And I notice I, I you, you jog my my mind about it now that the what you did for Vice with thirty days in solitary that is obviously quite a heavy task and it's also definitely more journalistic at least the process at the time if you're if you take that and then through that experience make something out of it that's uh, that's filmic but mm-hmm. interesting you know being um, a big time advocate in the journalistic realm 
for stuff like that, just so people know you, you put yourself in solitary for 30 days, right? Yeah. I, I and mean, filmed it? Yeah, it was a live, live stream. stream. Yeah. yeah. It was a live stream for 30 days. And, you know, typically I don't, I don't look at myself as, uh, as a journalist, right? Um, but yeah, it was definitely more journalistic in nature. Solitary for me at 16 years old was one of the most painful experiences that I'd ever been through. And it took me many years to recondition myself, reprogram, you know, like become a full person again. Yeah. Um, so, and that was 11 months that I'd spent in solitary then. There are guys, you know, there are enough bodies in solitary confinement to fill a football stadium, a pro football stadium. It's unbelievable. And there's a lot of them who are spending, you know, if not years, decades languishing in these cells. This is a practice that we started in the 1800s. It's 2017. It's how can we be okay with that here in this country? Like, as a people, how can we say that that is okay? I know that the Department of Corrections says that they use it as a management tool for violent offenders, so on and so forth. That's a misconception, huge misconception that people have. First of all, it doesn't make your community or your facilities any safer by damaging somebody to the point that they're completely irrational and more prone to violence than they've ever been. That's just, you know throw that off the table second you know it, it's just and I'm, I'm sorry i'm not i don't mean to say it like second you know i know you, you get this and like a lot of other people do but a lot of the offenders in solitary confinement are not in there for violent offenses yeah you can get thrown in a solitary cell for 30 days for having an extra roll of toilet paper really you know, yeah for talking back to a corrections officer Jeez. you know they're it's overused and it's misused i'm yeah. not saying that yeah. we shouldn't remove people who are a danger to the community. Well, I, I, I get exactly where you're right. coming from. But it's like, we need to rethink why and how we're doing it. Yeah. And there's a lot of smart people out there in the world and in this country. I, I think that if we came together and really tried to make an effort, we can probably find a better way to do it. And yeah, I mean, like when you hear, when I hear that from you and, and the, um, the lengths at which you're willing to go to shine light on the story, it's like, yeah, man, this is, this is what you do. Yeah, you know, I wanted to start a conversation, uh, raise awareness, um, and again, reach out to some folks, and hopefully it, you know, changed one or two minds out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping it does a lot more than that. Well, dude, this was fantastic, man. I really appreciate, you know, all that you shared. It's, it's, a, it's a lot, and it's awesome to hear. Thanks, man. I'm super pumped that you asked me to come on and do this, and, like, it's, it's great meeting with you and having this conversation. Absolutely, awesome. man. Thanks so much. Yeah, man.